All right, is there uh, finishing taking up the offering? Let me catch you up where we are um, in this series. Last week, uh, we began this new series where we were reading a story about a young couple uh, that lived a long time ago um, from the ancient city of Bethlehem. Um, and it's not that story. It's not the one you're thinking of. Uh, it's not the one that we're singing all the songs about right now. It's a different story. It's a story from the Old Testament book of Ruth. And it starts with a woman na- named um, Naomi and her husband, and they live in this little village of Bethlehem. Uh, but there's been a famine in Bethlehem, and so they leave, and they go to another country, the neighboring country of Moab. They're hoping to find a better life there. Uh, but things end up going really badly for Naomi. Uh, when they get there, her husband dies, Um, And then eventually her two sons die, and the two Moabite women that her two sons had married don't have any children uh, for 10 years. And so she faces all this hardship and all this suffering and all this pain because she has no grandchildren, she has no children, she has no husband, and things are terrible for her. And eventually she packs up and goes back to Bethlehem, but when she gets there, she basically says... Uh, it's all Yahweh's fault. Yahweh is the God that she worships. Yahweh is the God of the Hebrews. She says, it's all his fault. He's done all of these horrible things to me. I left full of life and opportunity and promise, and I've returned empty with nothing. And he's made my life bitter and harsh. Now, that's not exactly true. She didn't return with nothing because one of her daughters-in-law named Ruth came back to Bethlehem with her because Ruth pledged to her. Ruth is a Moabite. She's not even from Israel. She's never been to Bethlehem or Israel, but she comes back to Bethlehem with her and she says, I'll go with you and I'll walk with you through all of this pain and this hardship and and your people will become my people and your God, this God that's supposedly done all these horrible things to you, he'll become my God and we'll figure out a way to get through this. And so the very end of chapter one in the book of Ruth, we read that they come back to Bethlehem right as the barley harvest is beginning. And a new chapter in their lives is gonna begin as well. So happened that Naomi held a relative, a man prominent and rich, from Elimelech's side of the family. His name was Boaz. One day, Ruth, the Moabite immigrant, said to Naomi, I'm going to work, I'm going out to pick up leftover grain, following after some harvester who will treat me kindly. Naomi said, Go ahead, dear daughter. So Ruth set out. She went and started gleaning in a field, following in the wake of the harvesters. Eventually, she ended up in the part of the field owned by Boaz, her father-in-law, Elimelech's relative. A little while later, Boaz came out from Bethlehem, greeting his harvesters. Yahweh, God be with you, they replied, and may Yahweh God bless you. Boaz asked his young servant, who was foreman over the farmhands, who is this young woman? Where did she come from? The foreman said, why, that's the Moabite girl, the one who came with Naomi from the country of Moab. She asked permission, let me glean, she said, and gather among the leftover grain following after your harvesters. She's been at it steady ever since, from early morning until now, without so much as a break. Then Boaz spoke to Ruth, 
Listen, my daughter, from now on, don't go to any other field to glean. Stay right here in this one and stay close to the young women who work for me. Watch where they are harvesting and follow them and don't worry about a thing. I've given orders to my men not to harass you. When you get thirsty, feel free to go and drink from the water buckets that my men have filled. She dropped to her knees, then bowed her face to the ground. How does this happen that you should pick me out and treat me so kindly, me, a foreigner? Boaz answered her, I've heard all about you, heard all about the way you treated your mother-in-law after the death of her husband, and how you left your own father and mother and the land of your birth and have come to live among a bunch of total strangers. May Yahweh God reward you well, reward you lavishly for what you've done. For you have come to Yahweh, the God of Israel, as a little bird seeking shelter under the wings of its mother. She said, Oh, sir, such grace, such kindness, I don't deserve it. You've touched my heart, treated me like one of your own, and I don't even belong here. At the lunch break, Boaz said to her, Come over here, eat some bread, dip it in the wine. So she joined the harvesters. Boaz passed the roasted green to her. She ate her fill and even had some left over. When she got up to go back to work, Boaz ordered his servants, Let her glean where there's still plenty of grain on the ground. Make it easy for her. Better yet, pull some of the good stuff out and leave it for her to glean. Give her special treatment. Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. When she threshed out the grain she had gathered, she ended up with nearly a full 30-pound sack of barley. She gathered up her gleanings and went back to town and showed her mother-in-law the results of her day's work. She also gave her the leftovers from her lunch. Naomi asked her, So where did you glean today? Whose field? Yahweh God bless whoever it was who took such good care of you. Ruth told her mother-in-law, The man with whom I work today? His name is Boaz. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Why, Yahweh God bless that man. Yahweh God has quite walked, hasn't quite walked out on us after all. He still loves us in bad times as well as good. Naomi went on, That man, Ruth, is a close relative of ours, one of our circle of guardian redeemers. Ruth, the Moabite immigrant, said, Well, listen to this. He also told me, Stick with my workers until my harvesting is finished. Naomi said to Ruth, That's wonderful, dear daughter. Do that. You'll be safe in the company of the young women who work for him. No danger now of being raped in some stranger's field. So Ruth did it. She stuck close to Boaz's young women, gleaning in the fields daily, until both the barley and wheat harvesting were finished. And she continued living with her mother-in-law. So this was taking place in springtime in the little village of Bethlehem, probably late April or May or early June. And uh, that means it would have actually been the time of a Hebrew festival that people were anticipating and waiting for called Shavuot, which was the festival of weeks. 
The Festival of Weeks was something they celebrated every year. It took place seven weeks after Passover. Um, Later, uh, uh, Jews in the diaspora would call it Pentecost, and they would celebrate it every springtime. And this festival was interesting because they would remember a couple of really important things for Israelites. The first thing they would remember and celebrate was the harvest that God had brought. So as they're bringing the barley in, and then later as they're bringing the wheat in that spring, they would remember how God had provided for his people, and he cared for his people through the harvest. But they also celebrated and remember the law that God has, had given. Because it was believed that the law was given to Moses about seven weeks after Passover when they were in the wilderness. God gave all these laws to the uh, community of Israel. And that was how God provided and took care of the community of Israel. Through his law and through this harvest. And so every spring they would take care. Um, they would celebrate uh, this festival. But it wouldn't have been a time of celebration for Naomi and Ruth, right? They were widows. They were childless. In a culture where oftentimes women's status was connected to your husband or to your children, here's Naomi. She has no grandchildren. She has no children. She has no husband. Uh, Ruth is a Moabite. People in Israel looked down on Moabites. They were foreigners. In fact, many people hated the Moabites. They judged them, and they felt like they were not even real human beings. And of course, they were poor, They had nothing. Um, So they were pretty much on the margins of society. So everyone else is uh, going through this time of weeks where they were counting the days until the actual Shavuot festival began. And they all had these little calendars and they would open the little windows and there were chocolates behind every single, right? So it wasn't exactly like that, but it was kind of like that. They were counting the days. It was this time of waiting and anticipating, and there was a a sense of joy in the air. There was a sense of of a festive atmosphere because they were celebrating all God had done in their life, but not so much for Naomi and Ruth. And maybe that's how you feel during this season. (laughs) Maybe you feel like where there's so much joy and there's lights and there's this festive atmosphere and there's songs playing. You don't have a lot to celebrate this year. Everyone else is talking about everything that God has given them and God has done for them, and you're thinking, I don't feel like God has done very much for me lately. You're still trying to figure out what God has maybe done for you, or you're looking at this upcoming season and realizing this Christmas is going to be different than Christmases in the past. It's going to be harder. It's going to be more difficult. I don't have the same reasons to celebrate that everyone else does. That's how Naomi and Ruth would have felt. So one day during the harvest time, Ruth says to Naomi, and we're going to reread a few of the things that Kelsey read for us. This is what it says in chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So we'll get to Boaz in a second and explain him, but um, you might stop and say, what's going on here? What's this gleaning and harvesting? What's happening with this leftover grain? Uh, Well, this was actually part of the law of Moses, the thing that they were celebrating during that time. When God gave his law to the people of Israel, he wanted to make sure that people who were in need, people who were poor, people who were in desperate times were always taken care of. And so let me just read you a few verses from from the book of Leviticus this morning. This is the book we all skip, right? And we get through and we're like, la, 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 this doesn't mean anything. Well, actually, it does mean things in certain parts. So um, not all the parts, but most of the parts. Uh, 
Here's what Leviticus chapter 19 says. It says, when you reap the harvest, so this is God talking to the community of Israel, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. As I am Yahweh, your God. So remember, Israel is mostly an agriculture-based economy. That's how people got their food. And so uh, the wealthy in that community who owned the fields and who uh, owned the the orchards, um, they were supposed to leave parts of their fields for the poor to come along. They were supposed to not go all the way to the edges when they harvested. So they were supposed to leave uh, some of the edges. And then another place it says, leave the corners. So you can imagine a square plot of land and it was sort of going in a circle and it was, and, and the law said, just leave that corner. Don't harvest there. And by the way, also don't go over it a second time. Just go over it once so the poor and the widows and the orphans and the immigrants can come along and they can pick up the leftover grain they can pick up the grain in the edges and in the corners and God has a heart for people like this he cares about the poor and specifically these immigrants, these foreigners. In fact, over and over and over, when you do read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus and all these parts of the law, you see this phrase show up over and over and you see this idea where God talks about immigrants and foreigners and it's almost as if it's, it's really, really important to him. And, and he says this later in Leviticus 19 again. He says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am Yahweh, your God. So take care of immigrants, take care of refugees. Take care of migrants, take care of the foreigners, the outsiders that are living among you. Why? Because that's what you were. Remember when you lived in Egypt? Remember when you were in the minority? Remember when you were in the marginalized class? Remember when you were foreigners? Remember when people looked down on you? Remember when people were prejudiced against you? Remember when people didn't treat you like a real human being? Don't you dare, when you get into the land and you become a part of the majority, don't you look at minorities the same way. When you're part of the people that are in the center of power, when you have privilege, don't you dare look at foreigners and immigrants that way because that's how people treat you when you were in Egypt. And you should be different. Because here's the deal, I think God would say. Governments might do that. The Egyptian government might treat you as less than a human being, as a different class. The Assyrian government one day is gonna treat you that way. They're gonna put you in a separate class and treat you as less than a human being. The Roman government one day is gonna do that. That's what governments do. They take care of their own and they treat all foreigners differently. And maybe that's good government policy. But that's not what the community of faith should do. That's not what the people of Yahweh should do. We should see everyone as equal and children in God's sight. And so God has this passion that he says over and over and over, the immigrants, the people that are gonna feel like outsiders in your community, you take care of them and you look out for them and you treat them as if they're just like you. And I don't know about you, but I read this story and I'm challenged by that. That's, that's convicting personally. Because God doesn't just say, well, just... 
take care of these immigrants and these foreigners or, or these widows or these orphans or the poor or the marginalized. He actually puts provisions in the law, in their practices and in all their customs, ways that they can actually tangibly love and care for and show compassion to these groups of people. He says, here's ways that you can plow your fields. Here's practices you can live out in your everyday life and all the mundane tasks of your life. These are ways that you can show compassion to outsiders. And I wonder if we need to pause and ask the question, do we do that? Do we have practices in our lives? Do we have customs or, or traditions or ways that we work into our lives, tangible practices to show compassion to people who are in need. What are we doing as a community of faith? What are you doing as an individual? Here at New Denver Church, we have a few programs. Um, You've heard about them. We mentioned them earlier this morning. Uh, In Guatemala, we sponsored 122 kids to go to school that wouldn't have a chance to go to school. You guys do that, and that's amazing. We have a local partnership with Joshua Station, which is a housing um, development or community that helps people move out of homelessness. Many of our small groups have served with Joshua Station. Some of you uh, serve there regularly, and we should celebrate those things. It's awesome, and I hear stories of the way God is using people to show compassion to other people in our midst, and it's awesome. A lot of us do that, but if we're candid for a second, a lot of us don't serve or show compassion or do much regularly. It's not a very regular part of our lives. We don't regularly give our time and our attention and our energy and our resources to people who are a lot less fortunate. We might do it from time to time, right, and feel like we're generous, but we don't make it a regular pattern or habit in our lives. We did a survey in our church about a year ago, and uh, more than 100 people responded. And uh, here's a few um, results from that survey. 33% said that they regularly serve or volunteer with an organization here in town. And I know that's not the only way to serve or show compassion to people in need, but it's a really tangible and measurable way. So 33% said that they do that regularly, which means two-thirds of us don't. And when we ask people why, here are the top three reasons. Number one, I'm too busy. Number two, I didn't know about it or I don't know how to serve. Number three, it's just not a priority. So let me talk about these real real quickly. Um, I don't know that I can help you with your busyness, (laughs) right? I mean, we're all busy and, uh, and, and I think it's, I think it's probably the greatest sin of our generation. Honestly, I think it's, it's the greatest thing that keeps us from living the life that God wants us to live is we're all too busy. And, uh, and so I could talk about that for a long time and make us all feel really guilty this morning, right? And, um, and a little guilt is okay. Uh, I went to our pastors and I said, I want to do an eight-week sermon series starting in January all about busyness. And it's just going to be called Eliminate Busyness and Hurry from Your Life. In uh, eight weeks, we're going to talk about it. And they looked at me and they were like, you got any other ideas? Because <laughs> uh, no one will come. Um, so I don't know that I can help you with your busyness. I, I just think it's something we have to individually own up to and want to change. And it requires deep transformation. Like it's a deep issue that we're addicted to our busyness. So you got to figure out what to do about that in your life. But I can talk about the next couple, 
right? I can talk about the second reason. I don't know how to serve or, or where to serve, or I didn't know that was an option. So here's a few suggestions. Make it a practice. Make it a custom. Make it a tradition. Go to your family or to your group of friends or with your roommate or with your small group and say, hey, what are some tangible practices or what's one practice that we can just incorporate into our lives to show compassion to people who need it? And there's all kinds of ways to serve. We can connect you with Joshua Station, which I mentioned before. We do lots, there's lots of opportunities to serve with them. I can introduce you to John and Andrea Oldenburg. They serve with a a group here called Denver Dream Center. They go regularly to volunteer their time to help people who are coming out of homelessness or coming out of addiction or coming out of all sorts of difficult services. They already go. So all you have to do is say, can I just tag along with you and like find out what this is about and just serve with you? Um, I could introduce you to Jen Briggs. She has a heart for, for orphans. She has a heart for kids who just, who are in the foster care system and have never really been loved. And she wants to just figure out, how do I show love to them? And she started working with an organization here in town called Project 127. And it's awesome. And she's already involved in it. So all you have to do is meet Jen. I'll introduce you to her. And just say, when are you going next to do something connected to that? I want to find out more about it. Can our group come with you to learn more about what you're doing and what this is all about? Right? I get to introduce you to, to Carla and Tom, who have served with Casa de Paz, which is a ministry right here in town helping refugees and immigrants who have been kicked to the curb, basically. There's all sorts of ways and options. So just find something and figure out how to start serving and helping people. Come talk to anyone on staff and we'll help you with some first steps. Here's a third reason people don't serve. Mention it. It's just not a priority. And if, if I'm really candid this morning, this is me. Uh, I'm trying to work on the busyness thing in my life and I, I think I know how to serve. It's just not, it's just not a priority. Um, and as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, if you stop and think about it, that doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. Because Jesus said, whenever you serve people in need, whenever you help the poor, whenever you give food to someone who's hungry or shelter to someone who needs it or clothes to someone who needs it, you're actually serving me. You're doing it for me. Because here's the deal, when you are spiritually hungry, when you are spiritually needy, when you are spiritually in poverty, I came and showed compassion to you. And I rescued you, and I loved you, and I cared for you when no one else was, and I saved you. So when you see people who are physically hurting, that should always just be a mirror for you. That should just be a reflection so that you see the way I loved you in them, and you want to just share that love and that compassion with them as a reflection of following me. You see, for someone who's a follower of Jesus like me, it just doesn't make sense at all to say, That's just not a priority for me. So back in Ruth's story, we see how compassion can become a priority because we're introduced to this guy named Boaz, and uh, he's a wealthy man. He's wealthy. He's the one that owns the fields outside of Bethlehem, and uh, he's a man of character. We see that very quickly because when um, he meets Ruth in verse 8, look at what he says. It says, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. 
Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So here's what Boaz does. He lets Ruth stay in his fields and glean, meaning to pick up sort of the leftover grain that's dropped. Um, And he didn't have to do that, right? He doesn't have to follow the laws. The law said to do that, but a lot of people don't follow the laws. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. But even more than that, he he goes above and beyond. So first he says, you can actually glean and work with my women workers, So that's really important, and there's a cultural thing going on here. Let me just explain it real quickly. Here's the way agriculture worked in that time. First, there were the men harvesters, so they would come over to the field, and they would bring their sickles, and they would chop down all the grain, and they would lay it down. So that was the first group of men that would go through. And then the second group is the women workers, and they would come through, and they would pick up all the grain, and they would wrap it up into big bundles, and they would take it over to what's called a threshing floor, which was this very uh, flat place where it was crushed, and the, the kernels were separated from the husk. And then the poor and the marginalized were allowed to come through and pick up any leftovers that didn't get picked up. And so basically what Boaz is saying to Ruth is, you don't even have to be a part of the third group. I'm going to let you be a part of the second group. You can work with my women. You can go through the first time. You don't have to get the leftovers. You can get the good stuff. Glean with my women. Harvesters. Now don't miss this because it gives us a really good insight into Boaz's character because Boaz could have stopped and said, what's the least I need to do and still feel like I've done something, right? Because the law says, I mean, to help the poor, I should not go through twice. I should leave the edges and leave the corners. Well, what, how big is an edge, right? Are we talking like one feet, three feet, five, like how big is an edge? Uh, how big's a corner, right? How, how much time do we spend going through on the first pass? Do we spend a lot of time to try to get as much possible as we can or not much? What's, I think Boaz could have said, what's the, like, what do I have to do to feel like I've still done something to help people who are in need? And I think we ask the same question sometimes, right? I mean, exactly how much money do I need to give to a charity or to the church and Feel generous. Like, is giving some money in the plate? Is making a donation at Christmas? Like, how much do I need to give? Is it 10%? Like, what, what's the amount that I need to give that's required of me to give and feel like I'm doing the right thing? If I volunteer a couple of hours, if I do two hours a month, is that enough? Like, is that, is that enough? If I take a few good things, a few things to goodwill, like three or four times a year, like, is that, the, am I meeting the obligation of being generous? And, And when you start thinking that way, you look at Boaz and you realize he didn't think that way at all. He didn't say, what's the least I can give? It's almost as if he's going above and beyond to say, how can I just show compassion to this woman who needs it? She and her family are in desperate need. What do I need to do? And that's true character. Because character isn't, what's the letter of the law and how do I keep it? Character is, what's the spirit? The spirit of the law is help people who are in need. Feed them, love them, show them compassion. Character isn't giving your little bit and then moving on. Character is saying, well, what has God given me and how can I give more of that to other people? Character isn't what's the least I can do. Character is in light of all the time I have, in light of all the money God has given me, in light of all the blessings he's given me in my life, how can I be an instrument and channel of sharing those blessings with people who haven't actually experienced 
those blessings yet. And that's what Jesus did, right? He came and he gave his life for us. He didn't give the lease. He didn't say, looks like they're in a bad situation down there on earth, right? They're stuck in all their sin and it's horrible and there's violence and there's war. Uh, Father, what's the least we need to do to like help them out? He doesn't do that. He comes and we remember him as a baby, but in a few months we're gonna remember the cross. And he gives his whole life for us, to rescue us, to show compassion to us. And I think that's what Boaz does. He says, you don't have to just glean with the third group. You can join my women. You can get the best of my harvest. And then he goes on, he says, and I'll protect you. I don't want you to go to another field because other fields are dangerous. And let's not romanticize this for a a widowed um, immigrant young woman in Israel at this time, it would have been dangerous. There's a chance of being raped or violence done to you or being sold as a slave. And Boaz says, no, 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 we'll protect you. You stay here and I'll tell my men and women to look out for you and to make sure you're protected. And he also gives her food and water to drink. And then he tells his his men later, we didn't read this part, but he basically says, "Um, make it easy for her. Go and pick some of the long grains and just lay them down right in front of her. Make it easy so she has plenty to pick up. And then he says to her, you can stay here the whole harvest time, throughout the whole barley and all the wheat harvest. And then he sends her home that day and it says she goes home with this 30 pound sack full of barley, like a whole carry-on, right? Nine by 14 by 22, (laughs) full of barley. And it's gonna help Naomi and Ruth get through this difficult season. And they're gonna begin to start seeing their fortunes turn around. And it raises a, an important question. Why does Boaz do all this for her? Why does he do all this? I mean, maybe he's romantically interested, right? Well, that's not the case. Um, Boaz probably would have been somewhat older than her, 15, 20, 25 years older. And remember, Boaz is a wealthy Israelite. She's a young, different color skin, poor, marginalized, foreigner, widow. Like, there's no love interest happening in this story at this point. And so why does, why does he care so much for her? Why does he show so much love and compassion to her? In fact, this is the question Ruth asks him. She says this in verse 10. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? See, even there, she knows. She's just a category to most people. And as we've already said, it's because Boaz has a lot of character, but I also think it's because of Ruth's character because he replies, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. You see, Boaz had heard about what Ruth did. And I think Boaz saw her character and her compassion. She had heard what she did for her mother-in-law and how she helped her mother-in-law in a time of need. And it's almost as if character and compassion are contagious in this story. And he looks at her and says, because you've sown so much character and compassion towards Naomi, it just makes me want to show character and compassion toward you. But there's an even deeper reason that Boaz shows compassion, and it's found in the next verse. He goes on to say this, may Yahweh repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take 
refuge. And there's this amazing image here of this cold little bird who's come to take refuge under the wings of its mother. And it's this somewhat feminine image of God being like this this mother that just sees her children and wants to take care of them and, and has pity and compassion on them. And that's what Boaz is doing. Boaz is just a reflection of God's compassion on Ruth during this time. He sees that Ruth has come and Ruth is looking for refuge and Naomi is looking for refuge and they're crying out. And I think the thing we learn here is that when we come to God for refuge, he'll be there for us. He'll give it to us. And that doesn't mean he'll answer all of our prayers. And that doesn't mean he'll make all the hardship go away immediately. And that doesn't mean he's going to do all the things that we think he should do if we were in his place. But when we cry out to him for refuge and take shelter under his wings, he'll love us. And he'll show us compassion. Not because we deserve it, but simply because that's who he is. So let me just wrap up by asking a few questions of you this morning. Here's the first question. Do you have regular practices in your life to help people, help those in need? Because the truth is, I think if we don't have regular practices in our lives, customs in our lives, actual traditions or things that we make a regular pattern in our lives, we're just not going to do it. We're too busy. We have too many other priorities. Like ancient Israel, we need some practices. We need some things that we say, we're just going to make this a regular part of our lives. Things that compel us to see all areas of our lives as opportunities to help people who maybe aren't as blessed as us or who are in need. So do you have regular practices in your life? Here's the second question. What kind of character do you have? Because ultimately, that's what this is all about, right? What kind of character do you have? And if I could just speak for a second to parents, maybe even fathers especially, you want to show character to your kids? You want to be a person or example of character in front of your kids? Your kids don't care how much money you make. They don't care how much you work. And they don't care how many accomplishments and achievements you have to your name. And if that's what your character or my character is wrapped up in, guess what? They're going to grow up to be people that have that kind of character as well. But if we're people who show our kids and our families true character is having compassion on people in need, it's having love for people who may or may not even deserve it. It's just showing compassion. And they'll see that. And they'll grow up to be people who have that kind of character. If you're here and you don't have kids, or maybe you're married and you don't have kids, or maybe you're single, I would say to you, you maybe have even more opportunity and more time and more ability to be generous and to have character and to, and to help people who are in need and to show compassion to people who are in need. So what kind of character do you have? Here's the third question. Where are you seeking God's refuge in your life? If the character question is kind of about Boaz, this is about Ruth. Where are you seeking refuge? God's refuge in your life. Where are you running to him and just throwing yourself into his mercy? Where are you saying, God, I'm not gonna make it through this week if you don't intervene. I have nothing, I'm poor. I just, and that's hard for some of us 
We're all dependent on God, but we don't all realize how dependent we are on him. So where are you realizing your utter dependence on God and saying, I need your refuge in this situation, in this season, in this relationship, whatever it is? Because until we fully experience God's compassion and grace and mercy and refuge in our lives, we're not going to be able to be channels of that same grace and mercy and compassion to others in our lives. So I hope you'll come back next week. The story takes a bit of an interesting turn, and we'll keep reading it, but I hope you'll think about those questions. Let me pray. God, your compassion is so great in the way that you take care of us. Um, and it happens in little ways. For Ruth and Naomi, it was, it was literally in the food and the grain that they received from this wealthy man. Um, open our eyes to the ways that you've shown compassion on each one of us. Open our eyes to the blessings that you've given us that we don't even often realize. And then, Lord, open our eyes to the opportunities that we can pass those blessings and that compassion on to others in our lives. Help us to find our refuge in you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.